So being an NBA referee is an incredibly difficult job. There are always, there will always be a large segment of people that are unhappy with the referee's judgments. And so many of the calls that take place in a basketball game are judgment calls, and many of those calls could go either way uh, for either team. Um, and they're made in a split, section, uh, split second. In the Eastern Conference Finals, just, just before the championship round, the Boston Celtics were playing against the Miami Heat for a chance to go to the NBA Finals. And in Game 7, a player named Max Struess uh, took a three-point shot, and he made it. Um, but several minutes later, the referees determined that he had stepped out of bounds. Now, you can barely see that, so it's hard enough. But like, even if you've got... Like, really zoomed in, you wouldn't be able to tell whether his foot is in or out. Uh, depending on the angle, depending on what point in his uh, movement, you'd think, okay, I think his foot uh, hit the line, I don't think it hit the line. Both sides have their own arguments. Of course, if you're a Boston Celtics fan, he clearly stepped out of bounds. <laughs> and if you're a Miami Heat fan, of course, he didn't even come close. I, in fact, I think I can see a shadow under his foot, and I think I see Ant-Man holding it up. It's, it's going to be all right. Um, in, the, in the latest game, in the NBA Finals, there were numerous plays that uh, certainly could have gone in either direction. Here's an image of one of them. Uh, Steph Curry with his arm extended against Al Horford's chest. Sometimes they call that an offensive foul. Sometimes they call it a defensive foul. It's a judgment call. One set of fans is going to be happy. The other set of fans is going to be upset. Everyone's going to think the referees stink. That's just the way it goes. Sometimes they are right. Sometimes they are wrong. But you know what? We don't get to make the call. Regardless of your opinion, it doesn't make any difference what you think. You can have all the opinion you want, and the same result is going to be there. Of much more significance, there is a day when we will all stand before a holy God, and He will be our judge. The question is, are you ready for that day? Through the course of life, many of us will have people judging us, and oftentimes we will judge ourselves. But there is only one judge that really matters, and it's not you, and it's not me. It's only one judge that matters. So I'll ask you again, are you ready to stand before the one and only true God? We're in Romans 14. And in the first nine verses, uh, we've discussed the fact that we are to welcome one another because we are God's servants. In that discussion, we noted uh, in verse 1 that we're to welcome one another, but not to argue with one another. It's not like, all right, now we've got some, some fresh faces we can fight with. That's not it. Welcome one another not to argue. In verse 2, welcome one another not to despise or look down upon others and think, yeah, I've got it all together. You're kind of a mess. Um, not to welcome one another, to judge one another, also in verse 2. We're not welcoming one another um, for any other reason. We're to be convinced fully in our own minds. You see that in verses 5 and verse 23. We'll get to that in uh, next week or the week after. And then we're to dwell together for the honor and thanksgiving of God. That's what verses 6 through 9 give us the uh, an understanding of we are not our own servants we're servants of the lord we're owned by the lord we stand before the lord and what's so great about that is 
is this passage tells us that the one that makes us stand is not us, it's not our neighbor, it's not the church. The Lord makes us stand. That's a great gospel truth. The reason I will stand with confidence one day before the Lord is not because I'm special, but because He is. As we come to the next section, we want to welcome one another in light of the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. This was our scripture reading this morning. Romans 14, beginning in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God or give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. He makes the supposition, based upon knowledge, that there is a problem that Christians were judging and despising one another. And he says, why are you doing that, knowing that you're going to stand before a just, perfect judge? And only his assessment matters. Why are you judging one another? It's not helpful. You're not accomplishing anything positive by despising one another. And then he caps that discussion or that statement that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ by quoting Isaiah 45. And he says, it's written. This, this is an established fact. It stands written that every knee will bow. Not, you know, not just yours. Not just your neighbor's. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, the word there means to to say the same thing as, could be translated praise. Every tongue will praise God or confess God's name. They will confess to God. And then he concludes that small section by saying, so then, each one of us, or each of us, will give an account of himself to God. A a logos, it says. Uh, a, a, A written document that says, here's what it is. This is the way it is. It's not actually a written document, but it's, it has that concept. It's, it's something that's, that's been declared or something that's been recorded. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It's very natural for us to compare ourselves to one another. This is why there are boxing championships and golf tournaments and softball leagues and bowling leagues and dart-throwing leagues and axe-throwing leagues and go-kart leagues and all other kinds of stuff. We all want to say, yeah, I'm better than you are at this sport or this thing. I, I can run faster than you. I can run longer than you. I can stand on my feet before you fall on, you know, on your backside. You know, I, I, I'm better than you than, at this. We, it's normal for us to compare ourselves. But God has warned us time and time again to avoid comparing ourselves with one another. Take a look at Second. Corinthians 10. We're talking about standing before the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God. We're talking about the fact that in, in light of what God has done on our behalf, we're to welcome one another, care for one another, minister to one another in a way that's fruitful and helpful and encouraging in light of the fact that one day we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account of ourselves and the way that we deal with one another in one way or another will 
see this unfold. We're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture this morning to help us to gather what exactly this is and isn't. This really should be helpful to us, regardless of where you are in your, you know, your relationship with God, whether you know the Lord Jesus as Savior or you don't, whether you've been saved for a long time, you've trusted Christ a long time ago, or whether you're newly a believer. These concepts should really be helpful in getting our minds uh, thinking properly about what takes place all, all, in all the hours of our day. Like tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and go to work and do your thing, right? And the question is, does it make any difference? And the answer to that is, yes, it does make a difference. And we, we kind of get that concept from these passages. Right now, what we're seeing, we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus, but we have this tendency to, to compare ourselves. There's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 12. This is not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Anyone have any other way you would say that? They're kind of dumb. They're not really thinking. Verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you might be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another person's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, what does it say? Boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Don't spend your time comparing yourself with other people. Don't, Don't put yourself through this ringer. It's not going to help you. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 4, just in the book to your left, 1 Corinthians 4, he says something similar to this. Paul stated that it's unwise to consider the assessment of others or even his own assessment of himself. It's not what we should spend our time doing, comparing, well, you know, I, I see how that person did this, and where do I measure up to them? Other people aren't the measurement. There's only one measurement. It's Christ. And you know the, the really great thing for those of us that know Jesus is our Savior? We've been credited with that measurement of righteousness. He's given us His standard of measurement. He's righteous, and when we come to Him, He gives us that righteousness. And the assessment comes back as perfect. It's pretty, it's pretty unfathomable. It's outside of our... Uh, human logic, it's, this is, this is otherworldly logic. It's the, the, the logic that God gives us. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one or that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I think that's really important to understand that of all the things, you know, comparing yourself and, you know, how other people go about things, go about life, how they spend their time, what they prioritize and don't prioritize, if we compare like that, that's, that's not going to help us. If we have are constantly introspective, we're constantly looking at ourselves and trying to figure out whether we're good enough, that's not that helpful. Remember this, the one judgment that matters is not your neighbor's, it's not yours, it's, it's the Lord's. The Lord's judgment that matters. There is a judgment coming. And the Bible tells us that it's a judgment in accordance with truth. You, know, you watch a basketball game, it's like, all right, well, there are half, you know, maybe it could go this way, maybe it can go that way. When God judges, it's just in accordance with truth. There's no error there. Listen to this passage from Romans 2.2. It'll be on the screen. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit, commit such things. It's according to truth. God, God is not going to make a mistake in his assessment. And you know what else is true? Everyone, everyone will stand before that judgment seat. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's just a reality. You can disagree. You can say, no, it's not me. No, I don't believe that. Oh, that's a fantasy. You can say anything you want. Your, your, your assessment doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just the Bible says this is the way it is. You're going to live. You will die. And you will stand before a judge. What's going to be evaluated there? What is the scope of this judgment? Well, I have a lot to say about that because the Bible has a lot to say about it. So we're just going to kind of try to capture it rather briefly, the scope of that judgment. The Bible tells us that every careless word will be judged. Every careless word. In, in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 36, every careless, the word careless is a Greek word that means idle or lazy or useless. Something that's unthinking or unfiltered. Take a deep breath now. I think there's a great way to think about this unfiltered wording. Social media is a great way to think about unfiltered words. People say all kinds of nonsense on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I don't know, all the different things. I don't know what they are. I, I have... Snapchat on my phone. I, I Snapchat with three people, two of my sons and a fellow chaplain in the air guard. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I just do it every day. Take a picture of something or my face. These poor guys have to see my face every day. It's disgusting. <laughs> At any rate, the, all the words, lots and lots of words, don't waste them. Don't think that your words don't matter. They do. God says there'll be a, an assessment of these careless words. Every deed, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Every deed. Um, in Ecclesiastes 12, it says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring 
every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It, it all comes underneath that, that scope. I'm going to stand before the Lord. Interesting. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 that the secrets of men will be judged. The secrets of men. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that the purposes of the heart, the purposes of the heart, not, not just what you did, not just what you spoke, what you were thinking about doing, what you, what you intended to do, comes under this judgment. So essentially, it's, it's everything. Everything. Luke 8, 17 says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Are you thoroughly depressed? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> I don't, can, I, can I skip that one? Can I skip that day? Well, no. Nope. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not the end of the story. This is just the scope of the judgment. But now we want to talk about some facets of it, okay? Uh, we'll categorize it this way. The good, the good news, the bad news, some challenges, things that should make us think. And then the terrifying. The good, the bad, and the terrifying. The, the, the real, what should really make my mind start to um, ponder. So we'll start with the good. Usually I like to go terrifying, bad, and then good. I like to finish with a grand hua finale. It'd be great. Uh, but really, in this sense, I really want to set the tone. It's really important for us to understand with this judgment, because, you know, I've, I've thought, been thinking about the judgment seat of Christ since I was a young man, and I've had various ways in my, minds, my mind has thought about it, but um, starting off with understanding the gospel is very helpful to set our minds at ease in considering it. So first of all, the good the first item of good news is about who exactly is sitting on that judgment seat. Who is the judge? And the Bible makes that very clear. And I want to just have these uh, verses of Scripture on the, the screen for you just to, to authenticate what my assessment is that Jesus is the judge sitting on the throne. He's the one that is the judge. In Romans 2.16, it says, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus made this statement in John chapter 5 and verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And a little later in the same chapter, John 5.27, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the one sitting on the judgment seat is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, it uses the word, it's a Greek term, bema seat. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That bema seat was a seat of authority whereby judgments were rendered. Um, Paul was standing before a bema seat in Acts chapter 18 at one point. And then, you know what's really interesting? Jesus stood before a man named Pilate. I'm sure you remember the name Pilate. 
And Pilate was sitting on a Bema seat. So the one judge of all the universe at one point stood before a Bema seat. And Pilate assessed Jesus. Now his own assessment was there was nothing worthy of guilt in him, right? But he ultimately had to cater to the will of the people because it was the divine counsel of God that required this. For the people said, crucify him. Crucify him. And judgment was pronounced and Jesus was in fact crucified. Jesus stood before that Bema seat. But Jesus is the the ultimate judge. He's going to be sitting on that Bema seat. Now I want to remind you, these are familiar concepts, so this is nothing new, but I think it's, it's helpful to understand who this one is that's seated on the Bema seat, the judgment seat. He is uh, not only our judge, he's also our creator in Colossians 1.16. He's also our sustainer in Colossians 1.17. In other words, you're still breathing right now? because of him the universe is still functioning the way it is in order because of him he's also our redeemer it was through his blood that we have the forgiveness of sin it's not through silver or gold but through the precious blood of christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot he is the redeemer he's also the mediator there's One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. He gives us access to the Father. This is the same one that's the judge. He's our high priest. In Hebrews 4.14, he passed through the heavens. He's compassionate to us, for us, in verse 15 of chapter 4. In chapter 7, In verse 25 of the book of Hebrews, he always lives to make intercession for us. In other words, our judge is also praying for us. If that's not good news, I don't think we have any good news. But the one that will assess me on that day is the one that right now is praying for me. And another step beyond that, in 1 John chapter 2, this same judge is also my advocate. He defends me. This one is righteous. This one is righteous. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what is he saying? I paid for that. He is she is righteous so the first element of good news is the person that sits on that throne he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world in in romans chapter 3 and verse 25 the same concept here it says god put him forth this the savior put him forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the sins of former sins. You know what's interesting? This term propitiation used in 1 John 2 and Romans 3 is translated mercy seat. Same word, translated mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. 
Why does that matter? Well, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And the one who is our propitiation or mercy seat sits on that judgment seat. The mercy seat is covered, is covering that judgment seat. It's an amazing thing that our Savior is our judge. The one who laid his life down. The one who willingly gave his life for me is the one that's going to judge me. Well, I wonder what the Bible says about what that means. Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 8 for a moment. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The one that occupies that seat is our Savior. In Romans 8, starting in verse 31, God's Word says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, We see that Jesus, the Savior, the mercy seat, sits on the judgment seat through the justification provided by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of our sins have been accounted for and they will not, cannot be brought to our attention on the judgment day. How do I know? Well, again, let's let Scripture speak. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins. Will you say it with me? No more. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. How long? How many? No more. Never again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The question that I have for you is have you experienced this forgiveness that forever removes your sin? See, it's good news if you've turned to Christ. If you've turned to Christ and you said, I believe what you've done was for me. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, the Bible says you will be saved. Saved from what? This judgment from a holy God. Have you experienced that forgiveness? If you have, then the judgment against your sin has been forever removed. Paul indicates beautifully in the context of judgment that each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation, that sounds a lot better than condemnation, doesn't it? Each one will receive his commendation from God. The Bible says this in Romans chapter tw- uh, Revelation, excuse me, chapter 22 and verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly in my what does that say? My reward is with me to give to each one according to his works. That's gospel good news, isn't it? <laughs> if I if I simply received what I deserved, it would not be a reward. 
but my Savior has a reward for me because my condemnation has been swallowed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He stood condemned and guilty. He became sin for me, even though we knew no sin, so that I might be made the righteousness of God through Him. That's justification. So this is the good news. There is some challenging news as well. I think for, even for a believer, we, we need to properly assess this and think through what the judgment entails and, and what implications are there for the way I live Sunday through Sunday. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. From now until the Lord Jesus comes back. The, the, the judgment makes a difference, doesn't it? So it's not just, okay, I'm justified and so, okay, uh, you know, Sera, sera. What will be, will be. Whatever. There's, there's more to think about than that. Let's take a look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So now we move from the good to the bad. Now, it's probably not the greatest expression, the bad. I think from the good to the pensive. Pensive is a great word. I will mull this. Let me think this. Let me have deep thoughts about this. From the good... I've been saved, redeemed. I will never be declared guilty. I will never stand accountable for my sin because Jesus stood accountable in my place for my sin. That's good. The, the challenging is, okay, but I, I will still stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So what does that mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 8-10. through 10. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, that evil is a deceptive term there because it's, it's not really what the word is in the Greek. It's Phalos, which means worthless. There's a difference between something intrinsically evil and something that's useless. So the concept is, I will stand before the Lord, I will give an account, and I'll receive what is due for what is either good, things that please the Lord, things that are demonstrative of God's Spirit's work in my life, or that which is useless, I squandered and wasted opportunities. I did things in my own flesh. I, I thought, this is the best way to live. I don't care what you have to say. or I don't, I, I'm not really concerned about what, what you have to say. I'm not really concerned about what God's Word has to say. I'm not really concerned if the Spirit leads me or not. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm saved so everything's fine. I'm not going to worry about it. That's, that's, that's not really a de- demonstrating someone that really knows who the Lord is and what He's done for us those things that are good, and those things that are useless. So what does that mean? There are actions that we take in this life that are unfruitful and unworthy of being rewarded. John says it like this in 2 John verse 8. It's an interesting expression. It makes me ponder a lot. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. All right, now you tell me what that means. <laughs> so that's, that's a heavy one. So wh- what's being said here? Well, 
pay attention so that you're not squandering what has been won on your behalf, not squandering the life that you've been given, and not missing out on opportunities that God has for you to bring Him glory and to impact people. It's like you see two different people, right? And this one person is living their lives their own merry way, and you have another person that is wanting to tell other people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. One of them is impacting people for Christ and for eternity. The other person is just impacting their own little sphere of themselves. Does that make a difference? It does. The Lord has us here to bring people to an understanding of how great he is and what he has done. How is is someone going to know that Jesus laid his life down to pay for their sin if we're not telling them? How are people going to know that God is great unless we tell them about him? Now, there are certain things, of course, if you want to have that uh, deep um, philosophical conversation, you say, well, they can see that what God has made and they can know that God is glorious. That's true. They can know God's eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. But that doesn't save them. They need to know of God's mercy. They need to know of God's grace. They need to know of God's kindness. Because it's the kindness of God that brings about repentance. And repentance is, here I am, heading my own way. Oh, that's not going to work out. I see that the wages of sin is death. I'm going to turn this way and see that I have a Savior who laid down His life for me. Change of course. Because I have seen the kindness of God, it brings about repentance and faith in Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a moment. There are so many passages in the New Testament that talk about this assessment. And it's really virtually impossible to talk about them in the short time we have, so I'm trying to touch on some key ones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the church of Corinth, a group of believers. They have some division among them. But he's talking about the fact that God is still working and bringing forth fruit even among uh, some people that are fighting. He says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3, What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the increase or the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, verse 9 is super interesting. Our translators write it like we would say it. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. But the way, the way that it's written in the Greek would be more like this. God's fellow workers you are. God's field you are. God's building you are. Putting God at the beginning of each of those phrases. It's about Him. It's about Him. One person waters, another person plants. God gives the increase. He's talking about the fact that God is saving people and He hasn't stopped. He's talking about the ministry that God has called believers to. 
And he goes after, on the heels of that discussion about how God is doing this work, but using people. He goes on to discuss this in verses 10 through 15. Listen to these words. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that, uh, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be shown forth. For the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on uh, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. See reward? He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, loss of reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, God is doing this work as you're a part of God's program and God's building and God's ministry and God's kingdom and God's church, there are some times we're going to spend our time using building materials that are useless. They don't stand the test. Frivoling, frivolous waste of time items. We're not actually giving people the gospel that saves them. And at other times, we're going to be putting together gold, silver, and precious stones. We're, we're giving those things that last. What lasts? Basketball courts? They don't last. Come and go. It's nice. Glad to have them. Grass fields? Fantastic. New parking lot? Wonderful. Painted walls? Thankful. Lighting? Very good. All helpful. None of those things are gold, silver, or precious stones. We have the person of Christ to offer to people. People need to hear who He is. People need to see the impact that He makes. He is gentle and lowly. We hear Him tell us this. They need to see that He's gentle and lowly in us. Not pride, arrogance, joy, Peace, gentleness, kindness, love, those fruits that come from the Spirit, those things that God produces in us that impact people to know what kind of a God He is. These result in rewards. What does that look like? Who knows? There are all kinds of opinions that everyone has about that. You know, there are Stephanuses, those are the Greek term, crowns that are spoken of throughout the New Testament, whether it's the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, or the crown of glory. There's an incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. These are good things. But what is the point of reward? Is it so that people will know what kind of a spectacular person I was? Because I'll tell you this, I don't hate to burst your bubble, but I ain't spectacular. But the one I know who has saved me, he's spectacular. I want to spend my time pointing away from me, pointing away from you. You want to spend your time pointing away from you at him. He's glorious. I'll tell you that. That will never return void. That reality lasts forever. 
my goodness? Well, that, that ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Some days I'm walking in the Spirit and things are good. Love, joy, peace are coming out. And other times I'm walking in my flesh and other nonsense comes out. Pointing at me, very dangerous. Pointing at Him, always glorious. That's our job, friends. And throughout all of eternity, with these Stephanuses, these crowns, they're not for us. They're cast back at His feet, according to Revelation chapter 4. And throughout all eternity, according to Matthew and Daniel, they will be shining, reflecting His glorious radiance. Does that mean one person will shine differently than another? I don't know. It seems kind of like it might say that in 1 Corinthians 15. It kind of seems like that. Bottom line to this section, we've got the good, right? That's very clear. Sins removed, righteousness added, our mercy seat sits on the judgment seat. That's good. This section on the bad, okay? What does it mean? I don't want to waste my time. The Bible tells me to redeem the time for the days are evil. Don't just float on through life not thinking. God has a purpose and a plan for you. Let's point to Him while we're here. That, that's not going to happen by accident, you know. It actually takes thinking about it. Now, you can't make yourself a wonderful, shiny person. But He can. So Lord, help me to shine for You today. Guard my mouth. Guard my thinking. Guard my eyes. Help me in the things that I take into my mind. Because what comes in is going to impact what comes out. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, my God, my refuge, and my Redeemer. This is really important. So we've got the good, we've got the bad, and now the terrifying. We're just going to take a couple of moments here to talk about the terrifying. Now, I don't know where you stand before the Lord. So I want you to think. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? When you stand before the judge, will you be able to say, yes, I've trusted Christ. I'm standing here dressed in His righteousness. Or are you going to go there with the things you've accrued for yourself? I've worked really hard, kind of like Cain did. Worked really hard. Be happy with me. The terrifying news is if you're like Cain, trying to bring your own fruits, your own works to God, it's not going to turn out well for you. If you come to Him with Christ, there's nothing to fear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But for, for some, they, don't, they have not come to the place where they see their sin as an affront to God. They haven't seen Jesus' solution that fully deals with their sin and fully provides them with righteousness. And if that's the case, if you enter into eternity ready to put your record up against His, you're in deep trouble. Your record doesn't match. It's far inferior. And the standard for eternal life with God is perfect righteousness. Why is that terrifying? Well, I'm just going to read a couple of verses to, to, of Scripture to you to, to think about it. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
If you want to have your record be the one that's, that's scrutinized that day, you're just accruing for yourself wrath. In verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, God's Word says this, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, whether you're a, a, a Jewish person, the promised people of God, or whether you're a Gentile. It doesn't make any difference. No matter if you're a man or a woman or you don't know. It doesn't, that's, not, that's not the assessment. Do you know Jesus? And does he know you? Are you his? And is he yours? He's available to you. He's offered himself to you. He laid his life down for you. He's a wrath-removing, sacrificial Savior. That's what propitiation means. He removes all the wrath. He satisfied all the demands. And he asks you to do this one thing. Come to me. Come to me. You come to him, you have life. You come to him, eternal forgiveness. You come to him, eternal righteousness. No one can take it from you. No one can remove it. It's a gift that he gives to you through grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us through the washing of water and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more that the Bible says about this, this fury, this wrath. It's real. And it's unending. It's eternal separation from God. The Bible talks about it as weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Of perpetual, deep darkness. But with that terror, there is hope right now. There's hope right now. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. The Bible makes it clear in, in Romans 10, 9. You're going to skip through a few slides there, Jason. Romans 10 and verse 9, because if we confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And in a very few verses later, verse 13 Whoever, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Terrifying, righteous judgment. 
Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised for you. Come to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This is true for you. It's true for your children. It's true for your neighbor. God has informed us of what the gospel is, the good news, that he saves sinners like me. Back in Romans 14, he's telling us to welcome one another in light of this judgment. This judgment that all of us will face, that everyone will face. So what are we supposed to do? Hold forth Christ. Hold to Christ. Offer forth Christ. And in doing this, the Lord will do His work of saving people like you. Saving people like me. I only get to plant and water but God brings forth the increase. Let us, as believers, continuously hold up Christ for people to see and call people to come to Him. He gives life abundantly. Let's pray together. Father, You know what's going on in each person's heart. I do not. I I ask You, we ask You right now, that You would do Your work in the lives of believers, encouraging us to use our lives for your glory, for others' good. We pray, Father, that our welcoming others would be to point them to our Savior. And I pray, Father, for any among us that's never trusted Christ. Father, I pray that even now they would see that you are a safe refuge to them if they will turn to you. Help them to recognize their sin and to see that your solution for their sin is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please help them to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive eternal forgiveness and eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.